Amen and amen. I want to invite you to open your copy of God's Word with me to Mark chapter 14. Mark chapter 14, we're going to look at verses 10 and 11 here this morning. Mark chapter 14, verses 10 and 11. As you're flipping there, I want to remind you, we're walking through still this series in the book of Mark, but we're in the middle kind of a, a three-set sermon sub-series here, considering three different walks of life that have been fully poured out all based on a following of faith. Last week we looked at Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus. She had a life that was poured out and it called for her resources, her reputation, and it didn't matter the cost or the time or the sacrifice or what it looked like or felt like, and it called for a response. And that was a well-worth model to emulate. This morning, however... We come to a life poured out by Judas Iscariot. The one in whom Jesus said, Woe to that man. It would have been better if he was never born. So disclaimer at the beginning, what you're going to discover from this life that was poured out, you're likely going to learn more of what not to do based on how his life was poured out and then see by the Spirit's anointing and presence in this place how your life should be poured out in following of Jesus. So this is what the Word of God says. Two simple, straightforward verses. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priest. He went to them in order to betray him to them. Him being Jesus, the Son of God, the Lion of Judah, who first came to do the work of a pure, spotless once for all sacrificial lamb. Verse 11 says, And when they heard it, they were glad. And they promised him money. Other accounts tell us specifically 30 pieces of silver. So from there, Judas sought an opportunity to betray Jesus. As we look at this life poured out by Judas Iscariot, we're going to look at two things. We see two things that a life poured out reveals, specifically in the context of Judas Iscariot's life. A life poured out reveals two things. One is this, the sovereign plan of God. And secondly, a life poured out reveals a surrendered path of man. So in the life of Judas here that was poured out, especially in the final days here of Jesus' ministry, we see this life poured out, and it did two things. It revealed the sovereign plan of God, and it also revealed a surrendered path of this man, all while doing something else, all while showcasing something so undeniable. In the revealed sovereign plan of God, in the, in the revealed surrendered path of this man, Judas Iscariot, it showcased in undeniable ways that which was considered most sacred most sacred to God, and most sacred to Judas. So we come to this first thing, a life poured out reveals the sovereign plan of God. And just hearing that phrase, I'm certain some of you are like, well, what does that even mean, pastor? The sovereign plan of God. And I hear you. As far as theological principles go, sovereignty of God is one of those it seems like there are endless definitions, endless discussions. So I've got something that should help us out this morning. And if not, it's a helpful reminder for me. I go back to pastoring West Texas days. And out in West Texas, the people truly are like George Strait, pure country, heartland kind of folk. 
Simple people living side by side. Still, oh, come on. We can't get a little sing-along on 4th of July? Still wave to your neighbor as you're driving by? Come on. When we moved back from West Texas, I found myself on I-10 going 85, still waving oncoming traffic. Like, hello, neighbor. Oh, this ain't West Texas anymore. What I love about the simple folk from West Texas is not that the simplicity means foolishness, kiddos. It means simple, straightforward, straight to the point. And I remember a Bible study, we were talking about the sovereignty of God, and this, this man looked at me, a guy I love, he just said, Preacher, let me tell you about the sovereignty of God. God as sovereign means this. And I'll tell you what, preacher, I know you went to A&M, so this definition will help you remember how to spell it as well as what it means. And he said, this is what God as sovereign means. In the word sovereign, you've got that word reign. Sovereign. Not the type of rain we pray for out in West Texas, even when flash floods are happening, but rain as a king reigning over his subjects. R E. I-G-N. I got it correct. Whoop. See, what that means, preacher, is that God always has and always will be in control, but the how he's in control, the how his reigning looks in your life is TBD. He said that. I thought that was pretty cool. West Texas guy, TBD. God is always in control, but how that looks in your life is TBD. He was saying God is only God in only ways God can be God, and he's always been in control. He always will be in control. His plans will never be sidetracked. But in his sovereignty and full loving control of all things at all times and all places, he's so God that he allows some extent of free choice among his creation, all while his plans are never thwarted or disturbed. And as simple as that definition might be, God's always in control and the house TBD, as helpful as that might be for many of you here or just for myself, whatever that might be, it still presents some challenges. I mean, you look all throughout scripture, there's this tension that remains. Some passages of scripture seem so clear cut, black and white. Other passages of Scripture seem one extreme or the other. Some passages seem like God's sovereignty means that he is just forcing things in the equation to produce some type of result no matter what. And then others seem just clear-cut with great crystal clarity that humanity has some type of free will and choose, uh, choosing in the matter. And it's just some tension back and forth. And as you're here this morning, I'm certain you are of different persuasions on this spectrum. But if you sincerely approach Scripture, you too will conclude, regardless of where you find yourself, there is this tension that remains. This give and take of God's sovereignty and always in control, while also still preserving some element of freedom among his creation. And it's challenging. So what do we do? We come to a place and we focus on the essentials. See, the sovereignty of God's plan calls for that. Where God's plan, where his sovereign plan is revealed, it calls for that which is most sacred, the essentials, that which is more important than anything else. And so we come to the word of God uh, among all the tension, all the different um, possibilities, and we see some things that seem challenging, but we say, well, what's the main idea when it comes to salvation? 
Let's eliminate that on the periphery or the, the fringe. Let's eliminate the distractions. What is it really boiling down to when it comes to salvation? Well, we know this. John 14, 6, Jesus is the way, truth, and the life. No man can come into a reconciled personal relationship with God the Father as he was originally designed and made except through Jesus. Amen, praise the Lord, maybe. Okay, some of you. We also know that God initiates and accomplishes salvation. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you've been saved through faith. Not work of yourself, lest any one of you should boast, but it, it truly is a gift of God. Like the very beginning, initial drawing of you to salvation is God himself. The completion and securing of salvation is God himself. But even in that, we also equally know with absolute certainty the truths of those verses like Romans 10, 9 and 10. That if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. So in these strong elements of God having loving control over all things and all places at all times, he still reserves this margin for us as human beings made in his image somehow to receive or to reject his free gift. The sovereignty of God, the sovereign plan of God, calls for that which is most sacred. So we see it's all of God, offered, initiated, and secured by God. But still somehow we have the opportunity to receive or reject by faith. We focus on that which is vital, that which is deserving to be most sacred. I mean, I look forward to meeting one day Charles Simeon from the 1700s of Cambridge. He said, we're not called to be system Christians. We're called to be Bible Christians. He puts it to the, to the likes of a, a clock with all its inward gears and mechanics. These gears are going and spinning in different directions. And just at a glance, it might seem, okay, they're going in different directions. So how can they be working together? It looks as if everything is competing and opposing with one another. But when you zoom out and you see the entire system, it is beauty. It's order. It goes toward the same end goal. It's exactly why our very first core value, biblically based. As we're in covenant with one another, walking in the goodness of God, waging war on sin daily, first, our commitment above all else is to be biblically based in all things. And that last phrase we have on our core value Never giving in to any systems made by man, but only clinging to the Savior of Scripture. If I ever preach to you more about my system or my interpretive method than I do the Savior of this Scripture, you gots to call me out, church. Because any system I can come up with ain't going to save you. It's not going to transform you. Are there helpful systems? Absolutely. But I better talk about the Savior of the Scripture more than any system. I better focus in the sovereignty of God's plan on that or who is most sacred. And we see this demonstrated by Mary um, in verse 6 from last week's text. An example most worthy of emulating. Jesus says, out of all these things, leave her alone because she chose that which was most beautiful, that which was most vital and important, essential. 
Sovereignty of God called for her to keep the main thing, the main thing because she understood what was going on, didn't she? She understood as Jesus affirmed that he was being prepared for burial. The sovereign plan of God reveals and calls for that which is most sacred. We see it as we consider the life of Judas Iscariot because here we, we get this glimpse and reminder of the meta-narrative of Scripture. What's going on here in this passage? It's all culminating in this meta-narrative that God is relentlessly pursuing humanity because he is offering a way back to relationship with him through the death, burial, and resurrection of God the Son. See, the sovereign plan of God reveals that which is most sacred. Jesus, his son. Salvation. Reconciled relationship with the creator of all things. Before whom we deserve to stay in our condemnation. Before whom we deserve eternal separation. But in his love while we were still sinners. He stooped down in his grace. To provide a way of rescue. To provide a way of eternal restoration. So we see this epitomized in the life of Mary as her life was poured out. And she was focusing on that which was most essential. That which was most sacred. But it doesn't take long for me to convince you. When it came to life poured out by Judas Iscariot, the opposite was quite true. We see in just these two verses and other gospel accounts, he'd become greatly distracted, not just haphazardly distracted, but his entire life was gripped and controlled by love for money. Mary lavished her love on the Savior with this ointment, an average um, annual salaries worth of ointment, thirty, forty thousand dollars worth, all in a moment gone over the Savior, preparing him for his burial because she recognized the most beautiful. But Judas, as Scripture tells us in John twelve and other places, he was the treasurer. He kept the money box. And likely that ointment was some type of gift offered to the disciples and Jesus' crew there for public ministry. And Judas had other things in mind as he'd been distracted by things of lesser importance. Considering how much money he could get for that ointment, considering how much profit he could pilfer himself day in and day out. And now that was completely gone to the point where it says, he and others became indignant. His life poured out, revealed the sovereign plan of God because he completely dismissed that which was most sacred. But instead of just camping right here for a moment, I want to take us on a little kind of zoom out and see the panorama here. I know this little singular shot of Judas Iscariot is familiar, but what did the totality of his life really look like? How does God really see his sovereign plan in conjunction with the surrendered path of Judas's life showcasing that which is most sacred. Too often, too quick. We just think of Judas Iscariot with that phrase I opened up with, woe to that man. I mean, those are Jesus's words. You can't go wrong with the, the letters in red, right? Woe to that man 
Better he would have been if he were never born. Let's think about that. Where was he born? Where did it all begin? He was the only non-Galilean disciple in Kerioth. But before then, okay, we don't know the date, but, but the moment of conception, consider that. Where did that begin? Psalm 139, 13 and 14. Just like every one of you and me. In the womb of his mother, he was fearfully, wonderfully made. Where did he begin? Just as it does for every man, woman, and child at their conception. Genesis 1, 26, 27. Judas Iscariot was conceived and made in the image of God. Made for relationship, made for community. Made with the unique ability, unlike any other species on earth, to appreciate the glory and wonder of creation around him. Where did it all begin? It began just like the major prophet Jeremiah talks that every individual conceived is not an afterthought of the creator, but at the forefront of his thinking, God has thoughts toward everyone, Judas Iscariot included. And in the sovereign plan of God, balanced with an ability to choose a surrendered path in the potential of God's sovereign plan, God had a calling on Judas Iscariot's life for his glory and enjoyment. But in only ways that almighty sovereign God can, he allowed a choice, an extent of freedom of will. Hang with me here. And as this sovereign plan was revealed, Judas, as every one of us, as every one of you here today, in light of the sovereign plan of God in your life, you have an opportunity, being fearfully, wonderfully made in his image, you have an opportunity in the midst of God's sovereign plan for your life to choose How will he reign in your life? Because as we consider the story as it continues, flip back with me to Mark chapter 3. What takes place in Mark chapter 3? It says Jesus spent all night praying. What was he praying about? Why did it take all night for him to pray during that moment? Was, did he have a, a bad day? Did he sin a couple times that day or something? Really just had to get right with the Lord? No, we know that's not the case. Here the Son of God, perfect fellowship with God the Father. Yet he found the need to be desperately, passionately dependent upon God the Father. Because here in this moment, Mark 3, 13 to 19, he was preparing to call the original 12 disciples. And in the sovereign plan of God, with the ability for these 12 to choose their surrendered path before the Lord, Jesus prayed, and it says, he desired them to come to him. Verse 14, he appointed 12. It doesn't say 11 with one caveat. He desired and called 12, and of these 12, every one of them, he also named apostle. One of his who were eyewitnesses to who he was as the Son of God. One of his who were going to be sent out in his authority for his glory and the good of humanity. 
so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach. In verse 16, as if Scripture anticipated Christians struggling with God's sovereignty and our ability to surrender paths of life in that sovereignty, 16 emphasizes it again. Jesus appointed the 12. And just in case we're not clear or doubting it, verse 19, among the 12, Judas Iscariot, the one who betrayed him. Yes, I know, he's always last in the list. Well, after the fact and things pan out and you are the one who portrays Jesus, when the record is documented, you're going to be last in line, brother. That's just how it is. But for a moment, sincerely approach Scripture. Be biblically based and see the, the path that this took. And even for a moment, in light of the sovereignty of God's plan and the ability of this opportunity, should Judas Iscariot have chosen to optimize that. I can't help but wonder what might have been. It says Judas was part of those original 12. Part of those 12 Jesus spent all night praying about. Part of those 12 Jesus desired and called to himself. Part of the 12 that Jesus commissioned with authority to go out and preach and cast out demons. See, after death, burial, and resurrection, we see Judas takes his own life, spreads his blood and entrails on a field that's forsaken still today. And then the disciples are told to wait for the Holy Spirit there in Acts 1. But instead of waiting, they start rolling some dice. They start casting lots. And they conclude with Matthias as Judas' replacement. Later on, we don't hear much about Matthias. But later on, we know from 1 Corinthians 15, 8, something about Paul. He says, I was one Basically, born at the wrong time. I can't help think about the revealed sovereign plan of God in light of Judas's ability to choose a surrendered path aligned with God's sovereign plan instead of opposed to it. I wonder if it would have been Judas's three missionary journeys. I wonder if perhaps Judas would have been credited with 13 books in our New Testament today. See, the way Judas' life was poured out, it revealed the sovereign plan of God. It revealed the surrender path that Judas chose and ultimately showcased that Jesus as Son of God, as personal Lord and Savior, was nowhere close to that which Judas Iscariot honored most sacred. We see it play out in the Gospel accounts. It's all around this table. The guy just becomes indignant over a flask of ointment worth $40,000 supposedly on the market that he could have done during that time. So enraged, indignant, so much on tilt, so controlled by that which is not most sacred, Seeing all of his time wasted, seeing all of his endeavors and his cunning and deceit gone, slipping away, he decides to take 30 pieces of silver. Not even equivalent to half a week's pay. The price of a common slave. 
He becomes indignant that a year's worth is lost in a moment. And then he sells out Jesus for the equivalent of 400 plus dollars today. How revealing it is in the sovereignty of God's plan and the surrendered path of those who are following alongside Jesus that which truly is most sacred in their lives. He takes the silver, he pours himself out to make a quick buck and figure things out, but we know it ultimately ends with him emptying himself out on that forsaken field. But don't forget about God's sovereignty, the fullness of him being God, always in control, and the how being TBD. Go to John 13 with me. The beloved disciple, the one whose account was recorded later than the other three gospel accounts, John 13, 21 to 30, gives us insight here. Judas's surrendered path of life so confirmed that which was most sacred, even to the point of Jesus' last offer across the table. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit, and he testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So here's the setup. Jesus is leaning on a pillow on his left side. And so the man to his right would be able to lean his back into Jesus' open chest. And Jesus would be able to lean back into the open chest of the man beside him. Apparently, John the Beloved was at Jesus' right. And we know from conversation of Jesus whispering to Judas Iscariot, there was only one other place for Judas Iscariot. Not across the table, not at the end of the U-shaped table like he's left at the end of every apostle's list, but he is right there, Jesus' blind side, where Jesus leans into his chest, loves on him, trusts in him, offers this opportunity. within God's sovereign plan. Jesus answered, It is he to whom I'll give this morsel of bread when I've dipped it. So when he dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then, after Judas, my emphasis added, chose to take the morsel, And my emphasis added comes from a place of humility yet confidence because it's the same phraseology used for Pharaoh in the Old Testament and other places regarding the sovereignty of God and surrendered paths of humans. Then, when Judas chose to take that morsel, Satan entered into him. And it was then the sovereign plan of God was going to happen no matter what. But it was then 
the door for any opportunity of Judas to be part of his glory in a good way personally was completely closed off. So Jesus said, what you're going to do, do quickly. In this life poured out, Judas revealed the sovereign plan of God, clearly revealed his surrendered path as a man who did not value that which was most sacred. The sovereignty of God brings into focus that which is most sacred. The paths chosen by Judas, just as paths are chosen by us, reveal to others in a watching world who we truly believe on as most sacred. So I ask that question as we finish this morning. How have you surrendered your paths of living to the sovereign plan of God? How have you truly recognized that there indeed is a sovereign plan of God in which you have the opportunity by no merit of your own, but only by the grace of God himself to be a part of it in a glorious, most beneficial way? How have you considered that sovereign plan of God and paths in your own life of surrendering to him? I don't know what that is, but I'm certain there are some of you here this morning where you are seated and there are things you are contemplating in your life And the question isn't whether it's aligned or opposed with God's standard and God's sovereign plan. But the contemplation is coming of, well, if I I do this, I can make up for it later. Or if I neglect it now, surely there'll be another time in which I will have opportunity to allow his grace to welcome me into the fold. grace of God is amazing. It's abundant. It's more rich than we could ever imagine or deserve. But the extension of opportunity and the sovereign plan of God in a way that glorifies him to our benefit is not guaranteed past the breath you have now. So if you're a follower of Jesus, ask God to show you clearly any corner of your life in which it is not surrendered in alignment with his plan. And if you're here this morning and you don't have a confidence that Jesus is your personal Lord and Savior, don't let the distractions of blowing things up and stuffing your gut here in a few hours keep you from experiencing a transformation and restoration of life that goes well beyond this planet. Would you surrender your path to Jesus today?